a lot of mine was internal relationships. Like I, we had past clients. So a lot of past clients would call and email, but a lot of everything in any business you're doing, especially in sales is your referral relationships. Like I really valued the people I worked with at Wells Fargo. So I always made sure like I reached out to them or, Hey, like the bankers downstairs, I would buy them donuts once a month or, or whatever, whatever, like just creating that one, you have to have your knowledge base. Like you have to be very well versed in what you do. And then you have to perform, but then it's also the little stuff, having conversations about stuff outside of business, you know, just being personable on top of like knowing your stuff really well. Welcome to the Millennials and Money Podcast, a podcast dedicated to help millennials to make wise decisions with their money. We find some of the best ways to learn is through stories. So each week, your host and investment advisor representative, Payne Boyer, invites millennial guests on the show to share their money story. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to a very exciting episode of the Millennials and Money Podcast. I'm your host, as always, financial professional with Holmes, financial Peyton Boyer. And I got another exciting guest with me. This is the episode one of season three. So I'm excited to have my guest, Keith Mickey, kick us off as our first guest of the season. <clears throat> Keith is a mortgage professional and a real estate investor. He can tell you a lot more about himself than I can. So Keith, why don't you say hello and introduce who you are and what you do? Hi, everyone. Um, I'm currently a lender, mortgage lender with U.S. Bank, um, recently transferred there. I was at Wells Fargo's private bank uh, group for about 18 years, and now I'm transferring over to U.S. Bank. Um, me and my family recently last year started a, a real estate investment firm called Forever Real Estate Entrepreneurs. Um, so we're looking forward to doing more investment there. We're in our first investment right now in a, in a flip in South Lake Tahoe. So that's our that's our first um, uh, investment in a in a property um, in the area. But we're looking to do a lot more in state and out of state. Um, as far as my background, I mean, I was I grew up being an athlete. I grew up knowing I wanted to do something in the financial field. Um, I graduated from college with my BS in um, in finance. So my background has always been numbers. I've always uh, thought I would do something with, you know, with financing. Uh, my original goal was to be a financial advisor, but then it happenstance. And after I got out of college, I was looking for a job and I wound up in the mortgage field. And here we are 19 years later. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm excited to hear more about your journey to where you are today. <clears throat> you know, before we get into it, let's kind of share how we know each other. Okay. We actually met in the realtors group before you were a uh, before you became my client. You were my friend, of course, and I met you in the realtors group. That's a it's you know, you can tell them a lot more about the realtors than I can. So why don't you kind of share what the realtors is and what they what role they play? Okay, yeah. The realtors is um so in in, in real estate, there's different associations. So the main association is like the National Association, then you have the California Association. And then underneath those groups, you have smaller groups. So the Realtist is for um, African-American realtors in the area. But what they do is they bring in other professionals that are also um, tied into real estate, tied into the financial industry. And we all exchange referrals, we exchange ideas, and we do classes to help each other grow. <clears throat> that, that's really cool. You know, I love that group. 
I'm glad I met you. You've been a great client. I love your mindset. You've been a great addition to the Bible study as well. So this show is all about money and people's money story and their relationship with money. And a lot of times the relationship money with money begins even before they have their own money, but when they're children and in their home. So why don't you talk about what money was like for you and your family as you were growing up and how you grew up, where you grew up, what was that like? Okay. Yeah. Um, money, you know, I grew up with a single mom. She raised four of us and money never was really a topic at home. It was just, Hey, mom is going to work and the bills are paid. So it never was really a topic. Um, but I knew my mom was taking care of business because we never were without food. We never were without a roof over our head. We never were without clothes on our back. Um, as I got older and I started seeing what my mom was doing, I, I would always help her. Like we lived in, we originally moved to Fairfield when I was about seven, but my mom kept her property in Oakland. So she had what was a rental property. I didn't know what at the time, but I would always go out there and help her fix it up whenever we, whenever she was changing tenants and stuff like that. So I actually learned a lot of skills that I'm using at my own house now, hmm. working on her investment properties, like putting in new sinks or putting in faucets or, you know, redoing a bathroom, like all those things I learned just doing stuff for my mom. And, and when I got older, when I got into finance classes, and now that I'm in real estate, learning more about how money, money can be used as an investment makes it a, makes me look at money in a different way makes me look at making money in a different way because now instead of just having a job just to pay bills i have a job to finance further investments that's going to bring me additional income on the back end you know so i'm using my job as a tool and i'm using the money that i earn from my job as a tool to do more <clears throat> and that's really that's cool. really cool that's really cool, that's really cool. I'm I'm glad 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 that you know we think about we think about like you're growing up with your mom. Um, you knew you knew you were just going to do work on this other property. You didn't know your mom had an actual investment property. And then as you got older, you get, began to see, oh, wait a second, she's using this to earn more money. And you kind of carried that through your lifestyle. Now you're kind of doing the same thing, investing in your own property and using your money to continue to grow. So that's cool, man. Shout out to your mom, first and foremost, man. Single mother of four, black in the 90s. It wasn't easy, I'm sure, but she made it happen. Yeah. She's raised a great young man to you, so shout out to your mom, of course. So let's uh, fast forward a bit to the time, to a little time where you were more independent. Now you're not so much working for your mom, helping her earn money, but you're kind of independent. You might be in college, might be those early college years. Your, your first kind of experiences with your own money earning money, working, learning how to budget. When was that? Um, so that was like early 2000s is when like I graduated college. Like first off in college, the first thing they yeah, let, let's, give you. Let, let's go, let's go there. Let's talk about getting into college. And okay. like, did you know you're going to college from high school? How, how uh, was it all something you wanted to do? Let's talk about that. Okay. So yeah, I, I always wanted to go to college. I always figured that it would be on a scholarship kind of deal just because I knew how hard it would be for my mom to afford college. And so 
didn't get a scholarship right out of high school. So I wound up going to junior college, which actually turned out to be great because of the coaches I've met in track and football and the people I was around. I was actually able to go to college with most of my friends. We all would commute from Fairfield down to the Bay Area to go to junior college or Contra Costa. Um, you know, going to college, I I think junior college route is great for a lot of people, especially um, now in California, because I believe your first few years of junior college are covered. And it allowed me to do a lot of the prerequisites and grow a little bit before going to a four-year. So out of, out of junior college, um, I mean, I was able to, it was crazy because I was taking a full load in accounting hmm. as my major. I was, you know, commuting back and forth to the Bay so, Area. So, so let, let's, uh, let's pause that. So even at junior college, you're taking the full load of accounting. Yes. Uh, so let's talk about what gave you that idea. You know, you wanted to be around finance. What, what do you think planted those seeds? I think it was my grandfather. My grandfather used to always do like during tax season, he's an army vet. So, and I would watch him during tax season. He would always do taxes in his back room at his house in Oakland. So like I, and I knew my mom used to help him, like help him with his clients or whatever, do, do taxes. So my mom was always one to like, you go in her room and she had old checkbooks and she was always balancing her checkbook at the end of the month and doing things like that. So I think that's what sort of implanted the, the numbers <laughs> thing in me. And I always liked math. So I think that was my kickoff to wanting to do something in finance. Well, let's pause there because that's important what you said. You might have overlooked it. But, you know, a lot of what this show is mainly targeted towards millennials like us. And a lot of us are raising young families and we always are trying to teach them to be wise with money. At least our guests, I'm hoping our guests are trying to teach their children to be wise with money. But it sounded like you learned to be wise with money from seeing it. And that's very important because kids do what they see. It doesn't matter. You can tell them all, all the great advice, greatest advice in the world, but they're going to imitate what you do. So your mom set a great example by being wise with her finances and it kind of, it even set you in off in the career. So that's awesome. Again, shout out to your mom, man. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so let's talk about, uh, J, you got uh, JC, then what happened? All right. Did, did you get a scholarship from that point? And be, no. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to keep cutting you off, but I do want to mention one more thing. The junior college route, man, that was wise. Yeah. Like, I know in California, when you go to a junior college, if you, once you get out of there, you can pretty much go to UC of your choice rather mm -hmm. than what, you you don't have to settle. You can go to a school of your choice. So, you know, I know people like to go off to college right away and don't like to stay around home, but it's a much more financially wise decision and it's probably a better education in the long run when you get to choose where you go for to from there. Yeah. And and quite frankly, it's it comes down to work. Like a lot of people in junior college that might stay four years in a junior college because they're not going there with purpose. So I think everything comes down to purpose also. Like I was, we were commuting from Fairfield to the Bay Area to Richmond. Uh I was playing football and running track. So I was never like not in a sport during the season. And then I was also working after football or track practice at Ross and then going home while carrying a full load in college. You know, so I was able to do all that. And then I got a track scholarship to Sac State after two years of junior college. That was the grind, man. 
backstage. <clears throat> so when you were grinding, working at Ross, were you budgeting yourself then or how were finances for you then? It was, I mean, I was still living at home. So I was able to live, the money I was earning at Ross was going to, you know, make sure I had money for my books, make sure I had money for gas to get back and forth, make sure I had money for car insurance and cell phone. So I was able to take care of pretty much everything on my own, except like living expenses. I, I, I lived in Fairfield, so it didn't make it, I didn't have to like pay for an apartment in Richmond or anything like that. So that was, but I was rarely home. So it was like, <laughs> why have a whole bunch of costs on a place when I'm doing so much outside of home anyway, I wouldn't get home till 10 30, 11 o'clock at night anyway, and then be gone by nine o'clock the next morning. So <laughs> it just made sense for me to be at home and to uh to be able to use that money to to fund all the stuff I was doing. <clears throat> Got it. So you uh, after after two years in junior college, you went you went to Sac State. Did mm-hmm. you go to Sac State on a scholarship or yeah I went to Sac State on a track scholarship. On a track scholarship. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a it was part it was a scholarship that covered all my expense. It didn't cover my housing expenses, but I had family here in Sacramento, so I lived with family, and uh, but it paid for all my school books, paid paid for all my classes, and uh, I, I did that on scholarship. <clears throat> okay, so uh, you went to was it schools the your degree is in finance. Yeah, so I went to Sac State for two years. I was still in a, I got my AA in accounting at junior college. So before I left junior college, I got my accounting uh, AA in, in the two years. And then when I went to Sac State, um, I didn't finish at Sac State. I did two years at Sac State, but didn't finish my degree there. I wound up like at 22, I wound up needing just to find a job. And so I, I well, that's how I wound up at Wells Fargo. And then after a few years at Wells Fargo, I went to University of Phoenix to finish my finance degree. Okay, so let's talk about um, well, how'd you end up at Wells Fargo? What'd you do there? And what was going on in your life outside of work and school around that time? Oh, man, I wound up at Wells Fargo by, so I needed a job. And I figured, you know, I have my accounting degree. I have all this experience from school. Um, I've, I've worked all my life pretty much since 16. I, I used to, I worked at the old, it used to be called Marine World. So I started working at 16 and worked all the way through college. So it wasn't like I was ever not working. And so I had work experience. So I figured, oh, you know, I'll be able to find a job. I'll start off as a teller or like maybe a banker at a bank. So I applied to all these jobs and it was weird because it's like, oh, you're too skilled to be a teller. <laughs> but we don't really have any banker, you know, new banker positions open because those need, you know, you need um, you need to have time in the industry to be a banker. <laughs> I was like, well, I can't get the time to be a banker, but I have the skills to be a banker. But then you're saying I'm too qualified to be a teller. So. I don't care if I'm too qualified. I just want a job, you know what I mean? But then I wound up talking to a friend and she had went to a temp agency called Adeco. And this was during, this was like 2004. And this was like during the refi boom. So mortgage companies were hiring a lot of people. So she wound up at B of A and she's like, oh, Keith, you should try to try this tech, this temporary company. So I went to a company called Adeco and then I got in, they, it was weird how they did it. They, it was like 30 of us that they sent to a class for Wells Fargo. And you did this class and people that had the aptitude in the class would take, like have an interview at the, on the last day of the class. Then after that, they wound up hiring like 25 of us out of that class. 
And ever since then, it's just been a, you know, a, a steady climb. <laughs> to and so, so was it, uh, so that was to get you in the mortgage, you're in mortgages from day one. Yeah. So, so that were, was, that was as a, that was in the su- a support position, meaning that that was in our, in our, that wasn't as a loan officer. That was as I was, what was called a, um, a doctor. So somebody that was just pushing paperwork at first. And then after a week of doing that, they sent me to underwriting training. So that's when I became an underwriter <clears throat> at Wells Fargo. Okay. So now you're underwriter. This is 0405, the glory days of of real yeah. estate, yeah, you, you were probably making more money than you ever were before. So what oh, was yeah. that like? I mean, it was cool because then by then I, I had my own apartment. I bought a new car when I started my job, like things that I needed that I hadn't really experienced while I was in college. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I had my like at first I had a roommate in my apartment, but then my roommate moved out. So I was paying for my apartment by myself, had a car note, but luckily it was just me. So, I, I mean, I could survive. I was still in college mode. Right. So it didn't take much food to keep me happy. Yeah. Top ramen, <laughs> huh? Top ramen, cup top of ramen and KFC was what I was looking <laughs> for. So <laughs> I would cook every now and then, but it was, it was cool. I would just go to work, do my thing, come home, relax. And that was, that was life for a little while. So you were earning more money. Did you, you know, so many times, you know, when people in general, even myself at one point, you know, when we start earning more money, for some reason you start spending more. Did you got to get did that lifestyle creep coming to you at all? Or were you still diligent? Uh, I mean, it was, I would go out a little more. I would do, do some more things. Of course, I got a car note when I, when I, um, <clears throat> because my car, like, I think my my first car my mom gave me had like 230,000 miles and I drove it to 300,000 miles you know just so I wound up like saying you know what it's time to like it wasn't a brand new car but it was something that was that was good for me but I I started doing more stuff like going out to a little bit better restaurants every now and then and stuff like that so yeah you do spend a little more money I didn't go exorbitant because I wasn't making a crazy amount of cash, but it was it was a good experience to like because now I was living on my own, so I had living expenses as far as rent and stuff like that. So, <clears throat> okay, and so you're you're in the mortgages, you're you're, you're underwriter now, you're making good money. Um, it's the glory days of the mortgage. Um, what year did you get married and have children? Um, we got married in 2006 and then we had our son in 2007. Okay. So now you got a family. You're, how, how was it? What, how was it when you got married in 2006? You had your son in 2007. You have a family now. It's not just you on the ship. How was it managing your finances together? How, how, how do you work that work through that? I asked you because so many of our listeners are around that same stage of life, you know? Yeah, now that was a whirlwind. So like when we got married, we bought a condo right before we got married down there because I was in Southern California at the time. So we bought a condo. So how'd you end up down there? So I actually met my wife's, um, I worked with my wife's mom and I met her through her mom and she was already in Southern California um, getting ready to go to nursing school. So oh, okay. I to Southern California because she was going to be going to nursing school. And then we wind up dating and getting engaged and then getting married after she got out of nursing school. Okay. So when we had got married and had our kid, like, so it was, 
she got out of nursing school. She started working at uh, UCLA Hospital. I'm working at Wells Fargo still. You guys uh, are balling. <laughs> we bought a condo. Then we had our son. Like it was all like within like that two year period where it was just crazy. <laughs> so, so you guys are balling out. She's nursing. You're uh, you're still at Wells Fargo. Are you in the? I know now you're in the private bank. At that, that time, we in the private bank side. No, I was on what's called a, it was a builder group. So we dealt with a lot of new construction. Okay. Um, so we were doing mortgages for people buying like uh, condos in these new, newly constructed buildings. And so that's where uh, I, that, I picked up a little bit more money there. It wasn't like I was making crazy money. I think it was like 50,000 a year or something like that. But then mm-hmm. adding a second income where she's making another 40 or 50 that doubled our income. Right. So <laughs> We were able to buy a condo. We were able to afford that. Um, and then, you know, I had bought a new car because my other car had gotten an accident in. So I wound up getting a new car, which probably wasn't the best choice. But being young and dumb, like getting a, you know, a top. My, all my family had trucks like the Chevy Tahoe. So yeah. I bought a Tahoe, which probably was stupid, but <laughs> I spent money that I shouldn't have. But that was before knowing that we were going to be buying a condo and having a kid and all this other stuff. So <laughs> so what is what was life like as a homeowner for the first time? How, how was that? Were you, you know, talk to me about that. Oh, it was cool. I mean, it was it was a great location. It was good to have something that we knew was going to build for the future. Um, having our own space, especially with having our son now, we had a two bedroom condo, you know, in Southern California, not too far from the ocean. So it was, it was actually really cool being a homeowner That's at 25 been, years old. <clears throat> and so that was 07. You got a uh, dual income family, mm-hmm. uh, homeowners. You have a family, you're working in the mortgage industry. Um, did you have any sight of 08 coming? Did, you, did it seem like this is the sky's the limit? Uh, I saw it, but I didn't know how to capitalize on it. Like some <laughs> so being in mortgage at the time, especially being in Southern California and working on these new construction deals, I would see how the, I'm like, so let's just take one of the condo projects we were working on. And we, we did a three day release. So the first day we might do three releases as far as levels of the condo, it's a 26 story building. So like they might release 10 uh, units on 10 floors or so right so the first the first release let's say one property like say one bedroom condo is going for 300,000 that next Whoa. release on the same day it might be going for 325,000 for the same unit the oh, next wow. release by the end of the day might be going for 350,000 right and then by the end of the three releases on the third day that same unit that somebody got in in the first phase at 300,000 might cost them 425,000 now. So when I saw that, I was like, there's no way that that is sustainable. What was driving the price increase? The fact that there were so many people that wanted to get in. So there had to be a benefit on of getting in, in that first phase, second phase, third phase. Right. So there were so many people that wanted to get in. It got to the point to where people that got in on the first phase, like say one family, might bring three people to get in on the first phase they would then go and sell like say somebody didn't get into the 10th phase they would sell their contract to that person and say hey you're at the 10th phase this property is worth 425 
I'll sell you my $300,000 contract for $350,000. Oh, my gosh. So then that... people were selling their contracts to people before the building was even built. <laughs> that was crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Those guys who got it on day one, they made some money. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it was not like... I wish I would have known now what I knew. If if I would have known then what I know now, there was so many people capitalized on the way up and on the way down. So even if there's a crash, somebody's making money. Exactly. I mean, that's just how this country built. <laughs> so, so what was 08 like for you? You know, you being in the mortgage, being on ground, uh, you were at one of the warehouses, Wells Fargo. What was it like? So OA was crazy for me. So in 2007, we moved back to Northern California because my mom got cancer. I'm sorry. So like we had the we had the um, condo still, so we were renting that out. Then um, I was in the private bank for a year. By the time then, so stuff started oh. coming down in the private bank. Like it just. So, so let, let's talk about the, the before we go there. I guess I jumped over that. How did you talk to the listeners? Tell us what the private bank is, and then how you got into the private bank. Okay. The private bank um, at Wells Fargo is for clients that have a million dollars in assets or more. And so that was the initial, and it was mainly a lot of business banking clients, their personal side of their, of their finances. And so we would, as a part of the private bank, they did um, special lending, special underwriting, uh, just really, they treated the client as the whole relationship. So if a client had business banking, they had private banking, they had all these different avenues where they were, they had funds, you would have a relationship manager. And as a mortgage person, I would be part of that team that was handling that client's relationship. <clears throat> so the, the, that's, that's the thing I'm always interested in, man, uh, is just networking with people who are kind of fit that bill of the private banking client. So what is it that these kind of clients value as opposed to just the normal retail clients? Um, crazy is, I mean, not crazy. They, we're all professionals. So we expect when we're working with a professional that you're getting that person's knowledge, right? Like, so if I hire Peyton, I'm hiring Peyton, not necessarily because I need Peyton to do my budget, but I'm hiring him for his expertise because he does this every day. You know, and that takes things off of my plate that I have to work on because I have a professional helping me with it. So the same thing in the private bank. They're like, hey, here's my scenario. Tell me what I need to do. Not did that. All my, you know, it's the whole service piece of it. That's the biggest thing of the private bank. <clears throat> I appreciate you sharing that because they I'm big on they're big on delegation, leaving it, they want someone they can trust to manage and so to take it off their plate. In most cases, like my top clients, they they they're working their full time job is what is more important to them. Bringing that income to fund their goals, so they they're handling off to somebody else. They know they can trust to accomplish yeah. the things that are less um less urgent, I guess. Well, and it's so one of the managers at Wells Fargo said something that made a lot of sense when we were talking about what we do as loan officers and what like our processing team does. He was like, "There's certain tasks." that a processor should be doing, right? He was like, I want my loan officers to be doing $100 an hour tasks because that's what you're here for. The processor should be doing the $25 an hour tasks. 
right? Like they should be chasing paperwork, doing all this piece. You should be going out getting business. So as a business owner, they know their time is best spent trying to do more business, not trying to figure out how to do a loan. So they say, here's my portfolio. Take care of this for me. That was, that was really well said, man. That was, sorry to cut you off. That was, that was really well said. So yeah, that, that's the, the essence of private bank is all geared around towards having a team that's going to take care of that piece for you. And how'd you end up in the private bank? So because my mom got sick, I started looking for jobs up here at Wells Fargo um, that were in Northern California. And I wound up finding a um, loan officer assistant, uh, a, a, a group in the private. I didn't even know what the private bank was, even though I had built in Wells Fargo for six years at that time. Um, I found a group that was looking for an assistant. They were two top producers in Roseville. So I wound up in, I wound up flying up and interviewing with them and then they hired me. And that's how I wound up in the private bank. Wow. So, so were you taking a pay cut at first as an assistant from what you were before? Or no, I made more because I made my base salary that I was always already making. And then they gave me commission on top of that. <clears throat> okay. And what was the commission for as an assistant? Um, they would give me basis points depending on how much they close per month, right? So let's say I would get two basis points and let's say we close 10 million. So that would be like an extra 2000 for the month or whatever. It just depending on what, what they funded, I would get a percentage of that. Okay. And then um, how'd you make the move into actually being a mortgage provider yourself in the uh, at Wells Fargo, not just under, not just an assistant? So... What happened was, so as an as a loan officer assistant, I did a lot of stuff because I had the underwriting background. At that time in the private bank, we could underwrite our own loans up to a million. So I would do like a lot of the loan officer stuff for them. Like they would go get the business and then I would take care of everything else. I would underwrite the file. I would do all the finances. I would do all that piece. Then what happened is one of the partners wound up retiring. So then I joined the other partner and then we brought in another assistant. <clears throat> okay. And is all, what year is this? This was 2011, 12. Okay. So we so you were at the private bank for a while before you became a mortgage guy. I, I, we keep jumping back and over and before the uh, recession. So let's yeah. just go there right now. So what was that like? You were at the private bank 2008. I'm assuming you were an assistant at the time. Yeah. What was that like? Um, it was crazy because business slowed down a lot. So they thought they were going to have to let me go because they couldn't cover my salary. They weren't doing enough business to cover. Like at Wells Fargo, if you have an assistant, you have to be doing a certain amount of business for Wells Fargo to cover your assistant. And so they, it would just was a time where they weren't doing enough to cover having an assistant. So I actually started going to school. I was going to go to nursing school. So I started taking classes at the junior college to like get prereqs out the way to go to nursing school. Wow. I was going to go the nursing, uh, the nursing route and try to be like a physical therapist nurse. But then business wound up starting picking back up. And what, well, one, it was hard to get classes at the time. And because like, California has a big nursing shortage and it's a lot because there's not a lot of, like a lot of the kids at the UCs, like UC Davis and Sac State were going to the junior college to get science classes because there weren't enough science classes available at the own schools. Wow. And so 
you would be on a waiting list. Like the class would be full, even night classes. I was taking night classes. The night classes will be full and have a hundred person waiting list. Oh my gosh. Like it was just, it was just like, so had I been able to get all my classes, I might've made the transition to nursing, but it was just too hard to get classes. Like I took a few classes, but trying to get like chemistry, trying to get some of the like higher level um, science classes out of the way, I couldn't get into the class. But then That's crazy. Then business started picking back up industry. <clears throat> so, so how did people in the private bank? You mentioned business slowed down, and these are multimillionaires. So, yeah. how how were they reacting? Your clients reacting during this recession? So, I think the recession for people who are wealthy is a lot shorter. Oh, <laughs> right? explain. Like they they'll lose a little bit of money up front. They'll say, okay, my business, but then they reevaluate where their business is at. They reevaluate where their money's coming in. And then they say, okay, now it's a buying opportunity because stuff is cheap, mm-hmm. right? Like, so let's say the recession for a normal person is like, oh man, we were in a recession for three years and it took all this time for us to start recovering. A wealthy <laughs> person might be like, oh, it, t- it was six months. And then I was back on my grind. Like now I'm buying stuff because stuff is cheap. Wow. So they just readjust their mindset to the market at the time, but then they have the money available to take advantage of a market when it's low. Got it. <laughs> so, so, um, okay. Business picks up your, you, uh, you're no longer an assistant. You're, you're actually doing mortgages now mm-hmm. after 2008. So I know this is one thing I know about you just from the time we met in real This is a, you are a master prospect slash networker. So how did you begin to build your business at Wells Fargo? Um, a lot of mine was internal relationships. Like I, we had past clients. So a lot of past clients would call and email, but a lot of everything in any business you're doing, especially in sales, is your referral relationships. Like I really value the people I've worked with at Wells Fargo. So I always made sure like I reached out to them or, Hey, like the bankers downstairs, I would buy them donuts once a month or, or whatever, whatever, like just creating that one, you have to have your knowledge base. Like you have to be very well versed in what you do. And then you have to perform, but then it's also the little stuff, having conversations about stuff outside of business you know, just being personable on top of like knowing your stuff really well. Got it. So you're out networking, connecting with other people in the private bank mm-hmm. who work with you and then they're referring you some of their clients when they need a mortgage. Yes. <clears throat> okay. So what was the increase in income like from an assistant to being the guy who goes out there and gets the business himself? Oh yeah, it was like my income probably doubled. Wow! So yeah, I went from making probably like fifty-five thousand a year to making like a hundred. Yeah, oh, yeah, wow! So that that's a huge increase. Yeah. So I'm gonna go back to the lifestyle creep. Um. So did you still own the home in the in LA or in Southern California? So that's back to like the whole crash. So like when the crash happened, like when we first moved back, we moved up here from Southern California, which I tried to get my wife at the time to not rush into buying a house, but we wound up buying a house in Woodland. So we had the house in LA still, and we had the house in Woodland. 
And so the house in LA was pretty much covering the mortgage payment in the HOAs. Mm-hmm. And then um, when the crash happened, like we wound up getting rid of both properties. Okay. We wound up selling our short selling our home in Woodland and then getting rid of the property in LA. Cause what happened is the property in LA have the condo association had litigation. So we, that one actually got foreclosed on because our tenant moved out and everything. So that was our, our big, um, our big financial crisis, <laughs> you know, in our life as me and my wife, as far as things that didn't go right, that we wish we would have done some things differently. <clears throat> well, you know, you can't, no one can foresee a recession coming. I know yeah. when, like, so what, what would you have done differently? Um, I think when we first moved back, we, I wouldn't have rushed into getting a house as big as we did when we first moved back. Okay. Because I felt that while we could handle the payment, we weren't like we were making good money, but it was still like, we were so tight on our budget that I would have felt comfortable if we had a better payment. Right. And I knew better, but I just think that we should have scaled back on what we wanted and gone for, like I tell my clients, I didn't even follow my own advice. I'm like, there's a difference between what I can approve you for and what you can afford, right? Your affordability is where you would come in, Peyton, where you're like, hey, you have all these other bills that don't have anything to do with your mortgage. (laughs) So yeah, you can go buy a $600,000 house, but can you afford a $600,000 house? So- and that's so important. I'm doing that with my clients. I do that for myself, me and my wife. When we get approved, like just because you're approved for this doesn't mean you have to buy that. Yeah. You, you, I think it really is wise coming coming up with what you're willing to spend as far as monthly concerns on, on a mortgage before yeah. you even go get an approval. Because you get that approval, your eyes might get open super wide. Like, oh, yeah, we got this. And then you realize, wait a second, this doesn't fit into our budget. That's well, and then so people, important. yeah, oh, people, clients would say, well, I got approved for the 600000 and those houses are so much nicer than the $500,000 house or the four hundred. I'm like, well, that's why it costs 600000 It's, it's <laughs> be better and bigger and look nicer, <laughs> right? Like, that's the whole point of the value. And so it's, it's, and even every day, like I'm 40 now, I learn stuff every day i learned stuff in the private bank like watching how business owners treat their money that i try to implement a little bit now that i'm trying to do some more business stuff outside of just the banking like just how they i mean tax tax stuff that they you know their cpa gets them like hey you do this business then we can treat this this way you know just little things like that that you just learn i think being around um more money that you just don't that people just don't teach. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. So why don't we um, talk about, I know my listeners want to hear about free and about real estate investing. It's the hot thing. But before we go there, um, why don't we talk about your journey back into homeownership? Um, what, you, what you're doing with your property? Like every time I talk to this guy, Keith, he's working on another project in the house. And now I know where that came from, from working at those properties your mom owned back in Oakland. But let's uh let's talk about your your journey back into home ownership and where yes. you were working at the time. Um I'm st- I was still at Wells Fargo when I bought my house. Um I actually bought in the area where my mom, so my mom had sold her property in Oakland like in 2005 
And then she bought a duplex in uh, in Oak Park, in Sacramento and Oak Park back in 2005. So I had been in the area before helping her with her duplex. But when I got, when she sold and she sold her duplex in 2018. And at that time when she sold her duplex, I saw <clears throat> the changes coming in Oak Park. Mm-hmm. I saw new people buying houses. I saw brand new roofs being put on. I saw landscaping being done. I saw more investors coming in and building new properties. So I'm like, oh, that's going to be an area that's up and coming. And that's just from being in the industry, right? Like being in, then you start seeing Caltrans work on the roads and stuff too. So there's little clues that you can see where it might be an area that was historically not a great area, but you could start seeing when the changes are going to start coming. So <clears throat> when I started looking for a house, I was looking, I was working downtown Sacramento. So I was looking for something close to downtown and everything land park, of course, is multi-million dollar homes. Curtis park was too expensive there, you know, seven, 800,000 downtown was crazy. You know, for a condo, you're spending 600, 700,000. So I'm like, where could I go? And I was like, I'm going to drive over to Oak park and see what's going on over there. And I wound up finding a home. It was listed for 280. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Came in it. I loved it. And I was like, this would be perfect. Like it's, it it was an old habitat. It wasn't an old, it was, so most of the area, the homes are built in the sixties and seventies, but this particular home was a habitat for humanity home that was built in 2000. Okay. Four bedroom, two bath, which is not normal for the area. Two story home, big lot. So Man, I'm like, that's you know what? crazy. That Four bedroom, two bath for two eighty. What year was this? This was 2020. This is February 2020. So right before the pandemic, right before values went up. <clears throat> Man. So I actually I I put in an offer for two eighty. They accepted my offer. The appraisal came back at two seventy. They sold it to me for two seventy. Man, praise God. And so my payment all in with mortgage insurance, with rate, with everything turned out to be 1800 bucks a month. Now you can't rent this property for less than 2,400 bucks a month. Yeah. So (laughs) it was, it was a great buy for me. So you talked about, you, you talked about some of the signs you can, you see, and it's because you've got the trained eye. What are some of those signs that our my listeners can look for to see the next uh, area that's kind of on the rise? Um, you really want to look for community investment. You start seeing targets pop up, like in an area where you're like, why is there a target well here or a Costco? You start seeing some of you start seeing Caltrans do new roads, you start seeing um just more investment being put into an area then that's when you want to start doing more research in the air. Like, okay, why are they doing more investment in this air? What's to come, right? Because usually if they're going to build a target, they're going to be planning for a whole bunch of homes to be built around there for people to shop at the target or that Costco, right? So you just look for little clues where you're like, okay, they're this, the actual city, the actual businesses are starting to put more investment into the area. And then once you see that, you're like, there's a reason why they're redoing, they're tearing down the old building and putting up a new building, right? Like, so you want to start looking for signs like that, or that's what I looked for. <clears throat> Got it. Hey, I will leave that in the show notes because I'm sure my listeners are going to want to look at that again. Um, let's pause here for a commercial break and we're going to hop back and get into free and talk about what you're doing now with the real estate investment group. We'll be right back, guys. Investing in real estate involves special risk. 
including possible declines in real estate values, adverse economic conditions, and change in interest rates, and may not be suitable for all investors. Keith Mickey's experience may not be representative of the experience of other clients and is not indicative of future performance or success. Now that's out of the way, let's get back to the show. Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back. I'm here with my guest, Keith Mickey, mortgage professional specializing in the private bank and also real estate investor, owner of the real estate investment group, Free. So that's where we're going to go now, Keith. Talk to us about Free, what it is, and what made you decide to go that route? Um, so Free is uh, the acronym for my, my family's uh, <clears throat> real estate investment firm, Forever Real Estate Entrepreneurs. We, um, <clears throat> like I said, my family's always been into investing in real estate. I'm starting off with my mom and um, my brother. He's actually, he has a company, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in truck driving where he delivers cars. So he's a few trucks on the road. <clears throat> and then me, I'm in, you know, a uh, mortgage. So we've been talking about um, just things to diversify what we do, especially my brother trying to diversify some of his money um, for, for future. And then also trying to increase my mom's cash flow monthly to just help her with her, you know, day-to-day bills and stuff like that. And so we're like, well, why don't we just form a group together? So me and my brother, my mom formed a group and we're, we all invest into a new corporation where now we're putting our, you know, our funds together to go out and um, invest in real estate. <clears throat> so are you guys plan? do you guys plan on taking on investors or is it going to be just your, your thing? going forward um initially so free will just be us but then what we'll do we'll partner with other investors so the plan is to so right now we're actually we're actually uh partnered with an investor that's doing a property in south lake tahoe so it's a real estate firm that i knew that they do development also and they found a good deal in um in tahoe so we we came in as one of the investors on their on the property that they were doing so we're doing like gap financing for for their property, and uh, and so we're one of the investors on their property that hopefully should be hitting the market next month. <clears throat> so uh, gap financing for listeners, share what that is. So the developer had a certain amount of money and he needed additional funding to finish the investment. So we came in as that as that final investor on the property to help him finish the property. <clears throat> okay, so you you guys are really just kind of investors you just silent investors you're not getting in there doing fix and flips the more just you guys are just earning return on your investment so we're going to be doing all of it so for this one we're we're gap financing this one but we're also looking for our own flip opportunities so i have a friend that does flips here in sacramento and i'm looking to team up with him and do a flip here in sacramento once we found once we find the right property I'm also looking out of state, Alabama, Ohio, Indiana. We're looking for multifamily so we can do some buy and hold and get the monthly cash flow. So we're looking at all aspects. If we can find land and buy land and develop land, we'll do that. So it's just investing in all things real estate. <clears throat> that's really cool, man. That that's that's really cool. So for that gap financing, what can what kind of returns can you expect on a gap financing deal? So ours isn't normal. We're probably going to get a little bit better. Usually gap financing, you're just writing a note to the company and they're just going to pay you on the note. So like in our case, we invested 60000 to help him finish the project. So he's paying us a 10% on the 60000 Oh, wow. So that's, that's a you know 10% return, $6,000 back to us. 
But in this one, to sweeten the deal because you really need the financing, he's giving us a third of the net proceeds um, once the property closes. So that might be another 30,000 on top of the 6,000. So we could be looking at 40% returns. Man, that sounds like some favor, my man. That sounds like some favor. So um, the the 10% return, is that normal for um, is that normal for yeah, gas that's, finance? That's normal for the, yeah. <clears throat> and is, what what period is that over? What term is that over? It just, it just, so it depends on how long the project is, usually for the term of the project. So if the project's six months, then it's a, you know, but it, the, the term does it, you just get the 10% at the end of the project. Okay. Yeah. And for these gap finding, they're, they're not, they're not guaranteed or backed by anything. It's just the strength of the. So like in our case, we're tied into the property. So if something happened to the property, we're like a note. We actually write a note to the company. So okay. it's backed by the company. Like this particular case is tied to the real estate company. So our note is backed by the real estate company. Okay. <clears throat> so do you have any projects down the line or that you're looking at or is it just you're starting this first one to kind of do it one at a time? What's the yeah. plan? So this first one, we're in that one, but we're looking for, like, like I said, we've been looking for some multifamily. Haven't had a chance to really get out of state and, and do that heavy yet. So I really want to get a multifamily property out of state just because the cash flow is better. California is really hard to get cash flow um, from rental properties. Out of state is a lot better because their price points are so much better. And so I'm looking for out of state multifamily and then also looking for flip opportunities here in Sacramento. It's just, there's so many there. It's just so hard to find them before they hit the market, especially with how hot our market is that there's so many bigger investors that are going in like, they're okay having slimmer margins because they do so many of them. Yeah. Like I might be looking to make 30,000 on the property. They're like, Oh, we can go in and make five to 10, but we're doing 20 of them. You know, it makes it harder to, to find that property. Like we don't want, we don't have the capital to just like make a big mistake on a property. Like we have good capital, but I'm like, I don't want to go in and make a big mistake on a property just for the sake of doing it, doing, you know, doing a deal. So we're just being very selective on the deals that we get into. <clears throat> and the deals you just find from the network, how are you finding these deals? Yeah, um, network of real estate agents I know. Um, I actually, one of my buddies, he puts on a bigger pockets meetup in, in West Sac. So met a lot of people through that. Um, I go to mixers or one of my good buddies, Trevor Fong, he does a lot of business mixers out here. So I met a realtor that's actually doing a lot of, she has a group down in Alabama, Birmingham, that's doing a lot of flips. So I'm going to be teaming up with her, hopefully flying out to Birmingham in a few months and like looking at some properties out there. So the biggest key is for me is finding a system or somebody that already has a system set up and tapping into that system. Because then you can say, okay, like you're not flying blind. You're tapping into a system that you see has worked and then you can tap into that and grow it more. <clears throat> and the, the, that's why the, the, that's really why I'm going to make sure I add that in the show notes to the importance of systems of working with someone who like you're going to world world oiled machine at this point. It's not just they let's, let's roll the dice and see if it works. It's a well oiled machine and you just want to be part of it. You don't yeah. got to be the spearhead. You can just be part of it. And it's going to do enough for you. Um, do you see yourself um, always being in the, in the private banking world, always being in the mortgage space, or do you think free will just eventually make you free? 
Um, I mean, my goal is to get to the point to where it replaces my income. Mm-hmm. But then also my biggest goal is to be able to set up trust for my kids. So when, so every month I'll have a certain amount going from these investment properties, cash flow into my son and daughter's accounts. That's right? really cool. So they can focus on school or whatever they need to focus on. Or like my son, he might need help, additional help. I'm like, well, here's money to live off of, you know, coming from these investment properties. So even when I'm gone, that money could still be flowing into these trusts from what I built. <clears throat> That's legacy, man. That's really cool. It's all about legacy. I've found that most people, most of my clients who have really made it, who are retired and really done really well for themselves, what keeps them going, what keeps them planning is, is legacy, planning for what comes after them. So that's cool that you're, you're you got you got the sooner you start, the better. Yeah. So I'm glad you're doing that. I'm glad, I'm glad you're doing that with free. Um, your mom, she's retired. Yeah. So Free for her is something, is that like a post-retirement career? What's the plan for that with her? Yeah, for her, it's just additional cash flow monthly. So she worked at the post office for 36 years. Oh, nice. She's on fixed income. She has a, you know, pension, but it's not like her pension pays her a lot. So it's just, she's always had the additional cash flow from, from rental properties. So it's helping her create that additional cash flow. So she could do the little things, the other little things she wants to do outside of just paying her bills and living at home. Yeah, that's cool, man. I'm I'm excited for what you're gonna do. I know you're gonna succeed just because just the kind of job you have. I know you personally. I'm excited for the goals you're gonna accomplish. We're coming cl- up to the end of the show. I always end these shows the same way. And you know, you've lived what what I think most of our listeners would consider a financially successful lifestyle. You're a real estate investor. You've done great. You're earning high six-figure income. You're doing really well for yourself. But um, the words financial success mean different things to different people. It sounds like like it means a lot. It means legacy to you. But let's hear from your own words. What do the words financial success mean to you, Keith, today? Um, I would say today it means to me, it's not even the amount of money you make, right? Like it's being able to provide for your family, whatever that means for you, whether that means setting up your kids with trust funds, whether that means, you know, making sure you can pay for college. I'm a, I'm more of a, I'm a giver, right? Like I love making sure that people are taken care of. So if that means I can, Hey, I can spend more time not working and doing more volunteer stuff. Or, you know, so that's what financial success means for me, meaning that I have to build the ability to do things outside of working where I could go share what I've learned or my gifts or my money or whatever with other people. <clears throat> that's a great answer. And I, he goes back to the acronym free. If you're free, you're free to give time to others. And you really are a giver, man. I love that about you. You're definitely a giver. You are, You walk it like you talk it. Um, and being the giver that you are, if some of our listeners want to get in contact with you and just pick your brain on becoming a real estate investor, just looking at these things, like learning more about these things like gap deals, are you okay with me leaving your contact information in the show notes? Yeah, that's fine. All right, you guys, you heard it here first. Feel free to reach out to my main man, Keith Mickey. His email information will be in the contact notes below. 
I hope you guys enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like and leave a comment. You guys all take care. Have a blessed one. Keith, thanks a lot for being on. All right. Thanks, Peyton, for having me. It was a pleasure. Payne Boyer is a financial professional with Homes Financial of and Securities offered through Bertha Fisher & Company Financial Services, Inc., BFCFS member FINRA, FIPC, Homes Financial is independent of BFCFS.